This show is sponsored by Infinite Zeal Syndicate. You can follow him on Twitter at underscore Infinite Zeal. He is a great liberty-minded fella that just wants to share the message of liberty and also has fantastic merch like this hat I'm wearing right now. You see me wear it on every show. Um, he's a great gentleman, and I uh, highly suggest you give him a follow because he's one of the good ones, ladies and gentlemen. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Buds Reality Show. I'm Sean Collins, the guy with a lot to say. And this week we have the great Carol Roth in the house. Thank you so much for coming here. How are you? That's amazing. So is it like Carol the Great, like Catherine the Great? Because that's a new one. I've gotten called a lot of things, but that's a that's a new one. I want to add that to my my list of titles. You can totally add that to it because you deserve it. What you did with You Own Nothing was absolutely phenomenal. You did a great job with that. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, the writing a book is not for the faint of heart. It's a low ROI endeavor for most authors, but I felt like the information was so important. And so to get the reception um, from individuals like you to, to have it hit the New York Times bestseller list, to have, you know, this movement around ownership has been, um, you know, really rewarding and makes all of the um, the pain and the stress that it took to get it together worthwhile. You know, I've been paying attention to you, um, since you're on my buddy show, you're on the Cajun Libertarian show, Noel Olin. I'm a huge fan of his. Yeah, he's, he, one, of my, uh, he's one of my favorites. <laughs> here, he's actually uh, he's he's in my Libertarian trifecta. He's one of the people who helped me get loud. Um, he's been on the show twice. Love the guy. I'm going to get him on again soon, and most likely he'll be contacting you once he gets his internet figured out. He's got some internet issues at the moment. Yeah, we're we're longtime friends. I'm a bit a big fan of his. So before we dig into your book. Let's get a brief bio about yourself, because a lot of people who listen to my show are just kind of dabbling into the liberty movement. So let's uh, let's get a bio about you before we get going. It's a good thing, because even people who have following me have no idea what I do. So um, <laughs> if we go for the, like the, the, the brass tacks is that I come from a blue collar family, which really is the foundation of why I'm always rooting for the underdog and for, you know, preserving these middle-class opportunities because my dad was an electrician. Um, before him, my grandparents and great-grandparents came from another country, avoided uh, religious persecution. And really just in a few generations, you know, I've been able to seize the American dream in this crazy way. So it's something that's very personal to me. I am a recovering investment banker, uh, managed to do that as the, the first person in my family to graduate from college. And have been sort of this like collector of different experiences. So I do everything from advocate for small businesses to invest in middle market companies to provide advice to C-level individuals and big companies and uh, have been you know advisor to Fortune 500 companies. I have a number of my own businesses. I write, I speak. You can see behind me, I have an action figure made in my own likeness. Uh, I've written multiple books and um, yeah, just like if it's interesting to me, I would probably go, oh, I should do that. And, uh, and I do. <laughs> so, and you do it well, by the way, well, like, we, we have a lot of us appreciate what you're doing. Um, one of my main focuses uh, over the past few months really has been money, the Fed, econ, finance, along with foreign policy. That's where my brain is right now, really. But uh, 
you know, you dropped your book a, a, almost a month ago now, but just a couple of weeks, really. A couple but, weeks, yeah, a couple of weeks. Yeah, but I mean, it was last month, and uh, which was a stellar read, by the way. It really was. Like, I, I was yeah. very impressed. I'm a big book nerd. As of recent, to be honest, um, I had uh, some major surgery back in, in March, and so I was laid up for seven weeks, and so I needed stuff to do. So reading was my thing. I read seven books in seven weeks, and I just continued on to it. And I read all the good stuff. I was reading Rothbard and Spooner and, and Mises and nice. I, just the greats, you know, the great guys. Of, and Roth, and you, Roth know? you know, we Rothbard, have had to Mises collection. and Roth. It's like an accounting firm. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it's a great thing. But, you know, that being said, you definitely did your homework on this book um, that you just recently wrote. You own nothing. Now, I want to know from all your research and or between your research and the actual writing process, how long did this take? Well, so it's a hard question to ask because I am a longtime consumer of information and I also have a semi-photographic memory. So I will remember nothing important by the way, but random clips of things that pop up on Twitter or in the news and they'll just stick in my head and all of a sudden like I'll have a reason to access that. So, you know, this is part of it is me paying attention for a long period of time. But when I first got the idea um, to do a book, which to be fair was my editor for my last book said, hey, you should do a book and you should do it on this. And I said, I'm not doing a book on that, sorry. But I'll think about something. And I had all these ideas rolling around in my head and I was talking to people and they were frustrated because they were doing the right things and they were saving and they just couldn't get ahead. And I had like social credit and ESG and Wall Street competing with people for homes and like all these things just kind of like, like rolling around. So I knew kind of the, the the topics, but I wasn't sure what it was that connected them. And so it probably took me a good month before I even started anything of just these things rolling around my head before you will own nothing like hit me like a lightning bolt that here's the connector. And then once I had that connector, um, I am what uh, some people call a terminator. So it's the opposite of a procrastinator. A procrastinator just like waits. And for me, it's like I have something and I'm just like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and so I terminated the um, the first draft in um, just a couple months, like by early August, I think I was done from mid-May, I was done. And the draft was much longer, by the way, than the book is, because that's my other thing is I'm, I'm a more is more person. So I have a lot and then it has to be called back. And then my editor just kind of sat on it for many months and I kept going, what's going on here? And so it really wasn't until sort of November, December that I started getting edits and we spent a few months in edits and then put it to bed in March. So you know, there was a like a lot that happened in a very short period of time, and then a lot of nothing. And then really, for me, the worst part of any book is marketing it. So, you know, the writing of it and the research of it, that's actually the interesting part, because you learn, even, even when I knew this stuff, like when you dig into it, you learn so much. Um, and that's what's actually so funny. If you go on Amazon, there's like one or two reviews, like I knew everything in that book. And I'm like, really? Like, you must be the smartest person in the world because like I'm researching this and I'm following this and I learned a ton of things and certainly didn't connect the dots that way. So good for you, Mr. Know-it-all. 
<laughs> you knew every single thing in that book. But um, but yeah, that's kind of kind of the process. But you know, it, it sits with you like even when you're done like with the draft, you know, you're thinking and you're like seeing new stuff and then you're going, oh, I'm going to have to, that's been updated. I'm going to have to update that. And then at some point you just have to put it to bed, especially when it's a current events kind of book is that, you know, new data comes out every quarter. And at some point you're just like, okay, this is the date I wrote it. And everything else is just going to have to to stop there. Well, you know, it's it's funny because the name of the book actually came from something that the World Economic Forum loved to say, you will own nothing and be happy, um, which is totally sketchy right off the rip. I don't know how anybody could buy into it, but people are uh, to each their own per se. But I would love to wake people up to that is the very wrong idea. Um, but, you know, the title of your book is not just a clever name. Um, we are being, we are literally being attacked by multiple different entities, whether it be our own government, whether it be the WEF, whether it be big tech, whether right. it be large corporations, they're all coming after our money and our assets. And you did a fantastic job of explaining all of this. And to get this started about the book, you really went hard about ESGs. So I want to start there. So ESG, what's, what's fascinating about like all the things we're talking about, but ESG is one of those, is it's like the same bad idea that they just keep repackaging until it catches on in some form. And that's, you know, the one thing I'll say about Klaus Schwab, who runs the WEF, is that, can I swear on this, by the way? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So he is one persistent motherfucker. This guy has had the same shitty idea since 1971 and has just been finding different ways to repackage and repurpose it, which is why every time someone's like, oh, it's this one-off thing. And it's like, no, no, this has been going on for more than 50 years. And so it's the same thing with ESG as you know, you probably followed in the book, its development, you know, came, you know, throughout really the 90s under a, a kind of a an umbrella of different names that all had to do with sustainable development and responsible investing and all these things and they finally you know landed on this ESG moniker with the buy-in of um, the business community very much shepherded by Larry Fink the head of BlackRock which I'm assuming most of the people who watch this uh, show will know is the largest asset manager in the world and you know they put a lot of pressure on the business community to adopt what I call business social credit. And you know, when people say like, what is ESG other than the environmental, social and governance? Like, what does that mean? Like nobody can actually tell you because it was made to be wiggly, right? Like they can change it at their whim depending on whatever suits their purpose, which is why before Ukraine war weapons are bad, after Ukraine war weapons are good, you know, green vehicles are good. Oh, Elon Musk buys Twitter. Tesla is bad. Like it's it's just changes based on how they want to to influence and shape things. And it goes back to this concept of ownership and non-ownership, right? If you own something, if you own a share in a company, you have done that by putting something at risk. You either put your time and your capital and your sweat and your tears. Maybe you get some as options or you risk that capital and you get a piece of that business and you're a shareholder because you've taken a risk and you do have a vested interest in that business. The concept of stakeholder 
is just this weasel word for, hey, I'm somebody who's put nothing at risk, but I want to bully you, probably using somebody else's capital into achieving these political and social objectives. And that's where it becomes so dangerous. And the fact that it has become embraced as this ideal that people who don't have a real financial stake, they don't have um, you know, some skin in the game, are now trying to shape things. They're doing it in a way that leverages the capital of retirees and, and pensioners that isn't theirs. And you know, they're doing it to an end that hurts people's financial outcomes, as well as hinders innovations and you know, completely shapes the world in the mold of a handful of people who nobody elected to say, you know, we want you to tell us what to do. So it's a, a really scary scenario. And um, it's funny because Larry Fink went to you know, one of these fancy conferences a, a few weeks ago, and he was very upset that we've all figured out what ESG is. And so he says, I'm not going to use the phrase ESG anymore because it's been politicized. And it's like, well, it's not the phrase that's the problem. It's the behaviors that come with it that's the problem. But again, they want to repackage and repurpose these ideas because at the end of the day, it's like any other central planning. And I don't care if you want to call it communism or socialism or fascism or whatever ism, but those central planners who want to shape the world, they think they're in charge. They want to have the wealth and the power. They want to make all of the decisions instead of letting the free market make those decisions. And they want to reap the benefits for themselves and their cronies and everybody else be damned. And that's basically what they're trying to do with ESG. And because there's so much money to be made and so many participants who feel, I think, really afraid of being on the wrong side of these capital allocators that you're seeing companies do a lot of really stupid things intentionally or, or unintentionally. Yeah. And it's crazy because at this point in, in the United States, there's there's a lot of Americans who will be like, the government would never do that. And I'm like, well, let, let, let's hear this for a second, because at this moment, the, gover the government is never doing that harder than they've never done that before. And, and that being said, they're doing it through business right now. They're not necessarily doing it right. to us at the moment, but it's to businesses. And they've already rolled this shit out in other countries like China, you know, and if in and you said something in your book about, you know, somebody said some some naughty things about the Chinese government and they weren't they weren't allowed to to travel or go anywhere like their their little card that they had to carry around. They, they chime it in and they say, hey, you know, you can't go anywhere because, you know, you're you're restricted. You can't travel. And I'm like, whoa, man, this is crazy. And it's happening here. Yeah, it's um the social credit thing is is one of those things that seems very obvious, but people haven't really viewed it through the financial lens or sort of taken it to its logical conclusion. So in China, they do have this much more advanced formalized social credit system. It's not as formal and as centralized as people think. It's done on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. Some have letter grades, some have number grades. It all depends on what's important in that jurisdiction, but it's the same kind of thing. If you do things that the CCP in that jurisdiction wants you to do, you're rewarded. And if you don't, you're penalized. And some of these penalties are insane. I shared uh, the story of Lao Duan in the book, which came from NPR. So again, this is not like NPR, folks. This is not a conspiracy theory. And uh, you know, he 
was uh, on the, the wrong side of social credit because he was a coal intermediary. So he bought, he stored, and he sold physical coal. And China decided they were going to change their policy on coal. And it just completely wiped out his business. So he had debts from that. And so they put him on the blacklist. And by being on that, he not only wasn't allowed to travel, but he's you know walking with this person from NPR and he like looks up to, at this billboard and there's this Orwellian digital billboard that has his picture on it that says, you know, this is an untrustworthy person and has his name and his like identifier number. And then he's watching the other faces scroll through and a lot of them he's recognizing as his colleagues from the coal industry, which again, were decimated by, by the government and now have ended up, you know, as these uh, untrustworthy people. There's another one that's been making the round on social media, this telephone message that you get where all of a sudden you, you get a call and it's like, alert, alert. Ah! And then it's like the person who's calling you owes money and you better tell them that they need to pay their debt, which ostensibly is certainly like coercing you to become involved in the process. And, you know, who knows what happens to you or them. And it's easy for us to go, well, you know, that's the CCP. It doesn't happen here. But I would offer that cancel culture and informal social credit are really the precursors. And we've had that. So if you think about social credit financially, it comes after you three ways. One is it comes after your social standing, which are your opportunities to create wealth, right? Nobody's offering you opportunities and jobs and whatnot if you're an outcast from society. The second is your job, your way that you, you know, make an income. And the third is your financial assets. So think about it. If you were on the side of quote unquote wrong think and you didn't want to take a vaccine or you didn't want to wear a mask, you couldn't go to Christmas, you couldn't go to Thanksgiving, you couldn't go to a restaurant once they actually opened up that and participate in society. Maybe someone took your picture at Trader Joe's and put it online and said, oh my God, I can't believe that Carol wasn't wearing a mask, you know, whatever it is. So they're going after your social standing. We know that Biden mandated that people lose their jobs. Some yes. of that was you know, direct mandate and some of them was coercing businesses. Well, you might not fall into this right now, but do you really want to have these people around in case we change our minds? So a lot of people who, by the way, were considered essential workers and heroes who worked through all of COVID while the you know elite got to stay home, um, now all of a sudden lost their jobs. If you had a small business that was consumer facing, your business was taken away by government mandate for some period of time. If you are a neighbor to the North, you were in the freedom convoy, you were a trucker, you had your bank account frozen. And so you know, these are all things that are basically a stone's throw away from what they have in China. And we have the technology to be able to collect and analyze this data at scale. And we've proven that we have a populace that's willing to turn on other people they know, their coworkers, their family members to you know, get what I call ROE, return on ego. You get your emoji in your bio and you can wear your t-shirt and whatnot. And you get to be on the right side and part of the cool kids until you're not. And nobody seems to, to think about the, that when it comes for them. But, you know, you've got people who are willing to go along with that and enforce it. And it's really, really frightening.
you know, you brought up that Freedom Convoy that actually I'm in Detroit. So that actually got very close to home because they shut down the Ambassador Bridge, which is the connection between Detroit yeah. and Boozer. And it was a big deal. And they let it go down for a couple of days. And then, you know, Gretchen Hitler, I'm sorry, that's what she is, um, finally sent the road pirates out there to shut it down or start putting people in jail or whatever. But on the Canadian side of it, they were shutting these people's bank accounts down. Yeah. Literally shutting down bank accounts to these truckers, which is completely an overreach by every side of the of the pond. No matter where you are, if somebody is shutting down your bank account because of how you feel socially and or politically, that is some serious, serious shit. I don't know if you're following Nigel Farage on uh, social media, but he's just had that happen to him. He's had a bank that he's been with for decades, which has said, yeah, we don't really like what you're saying. Um, so, you know, we don't want your business anymore. And we've had, you know, numerous people who we know, in some cases, the government colluding with social media platforms to get them deep platforms, but people who've lost access to all different kinds of infrastructure in sort of the modern digital age because of you know who they are what they were saying that you know they they didn't do the right thing so okay we didn't get an actual score for it but the outcome is still the same so how is that not social credit it's crazy and and i've been on i you know i've never had my bank account shut down but i've been attacked by big tech like my original buds page um i used to be buds in the basement when i first started this show it was buds in the basement and uh Facebook unpublished us. They took us down over a picture I shared of Hunter Biden with hookers um, that I took from somebody off of Facebook, literally. Right. And right. so I've been on that side of things. Recently, iHeartRadio just uh, uh, took us down, but we were able to get through that. They they tried to say we were a flag for misinformation, but they could never tell us what was misinformation. I, I, my, I couldn't advertise my book, so I tried to buy... YouTube ads um, and we were pulled down multiple times because first we were said, oh, you know, you can't, you didn't register for election ads. And I was like, well, my book has nothing to do with an election and I don't say anything about elections. Oh, okay. Well, sometimes the word freedom gets caught in the filters, which gives you a side eye and I go, okay, <laughs> but my, my trailer doesn't say anything about freedom either. Oh, well, that's weird. We don't know why it happened. It should be fine. And so, you know, this happened three different times until we gave up. And the challenge with that is that when you do a Google ad, there's a learning curve. So you do these spends and they're very expensive at the beginning because they, the algorithm has to learn who to serve it to until it gets, a, you know, an efficiency. So you go through all of that and then they pull it and then you have to start over again. So you never get any critical mass. Um, and then I had some problems with Amazon uh, releasing my um, some of the, my early reviewers reviews and all kinds of weird things. And some of it could just be incompetence and in tech and whatever. But like, there's so many of them that I'm sure that some of them are not. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, it's weird being on that side of things because, you know, when you're just on social media and you get a ban or something, you know, for saying the wrong things about Joe Biden or whoever it may be. It's a, it's a little bit different when you're trying to push something like I'm trying to push this show. So then when I do something like this and they, they ban me or they shadow right. ban me or whatever it may be, it makes it hard for me to get a message out 
Let it's a, a financial penalty. You yes. will own nothing. It's the same thing with me on Twitter. I have a legacy gremlin in my account that was put in under the last regime that whatever tinkering the Elon Musk regime has done has actually made it worse. And so I've taken screenshots. Like my impressions went from like 30 million impressions a month to like three. Like it was like insane. And tweets that used to get thousands of likes will get like hundreds of likes and things like that. I mean, I have 180,000 followers. So it's, you know, there's some level that you would expect to have the engagement. And by the way, it's also people saying to me, like, I don't see your stuff and I'm not seeing theirs either. So it goes both ways. And so it was really kind of sad because when I did my last book, I had maybe like half the following that I have now, but the amount of engagement that I had so many more people saw this. I mean, the amount of people who don't even know that I have a book out right now, again, this is impacting me, you know, not just from a speech standpoint, but from a financial standpoint. Oh, as of right now, as we speak, um, I had Dr. Shiva Iadori on my show a couple weeks ago, and he's got a big beef with Musk. They, they beef, whatever it may be. He talked about it on my show, but anyways, ever since I've had him on and like added him like to, to try to push that episode, I don't get barely any interactions anymore because wow. yeah, no straight up. Like there's, there's no ifs, ands or buts about it. As soon as I started adding Shiva, yeah. like it, it's been like, you're connected so with this person. And so your, your, your social credit, which is the whole thing we're talking about your social credit, because you're now in it and it's meant to punish you for interacting with this person. And it wants to punish that person by punishing you and going, okay, well, it, it's not worth my time to be associated with that person. And that's very nefarious. And if we think about this at scale with technology, um, you know, the, the consequences are very severe and certainly don't look anything like liberty, liberty or, you know, a free America. No, it's, it's actually uh, very fascist. It's very communist. You can call it socialist if you want. It's all the ist or isms right. that you put in there. It's, it's quite ridiculous and, and very disheartening when you're trying to do something like this. But uh, moving on from ESGs, let's move on to the people who want us trip chipped, tracked, and eating bugs, the WEF, because you hit hard on that too. Yeah. So <laughs> the World Economic Forum, as I said, is just this kind of weird scenario because Klaus Schwab, who looks like, you know, he's cast right out of a, a Bond movie as the villain. In fact, I had uh, Glenn Beck's book on my, uh, my counter and somebody came over and they're like, who's that guy? And I'm like, oh, it's Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum. And they're like, oh, he looks like, uh, you know, a real bad guy. And I'm like, oh, you don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about the, the World Economic Forum and just some of their predictions and the things that they put out um, is that they really are pushing this sort of rebrand of the isms, you know, the, the, the Marxist ideology, the communism, the, the socialism. So if we just go with the, the, the idea of you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. You know, so this comes from a video that you can find, at least currently, they do take down a lot of their stuff, but currently it's still up on their Twitter feed. It is their, their citation on the bottom is it's from their Global Futures Council. Global future councils. So they clearly got input from a bunch of people and they came up with these eight predictions. So interesting, if you pay attention to the language, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. You'll own nothing. 
is not will own nothing. <laughs> it's not we'll all own nothing. It's clearly you. And that differentiation between us and them is really what the, the cornerstone, I think, of you will own nothing is about, is that we're this class and we're going to hang on to all of this wealth and power and mm, not so much for you. The second piece of that, which is just as sinister, is that you'll be happy. And that means they're trying to get you to buy into this, that you're, they, they want you to psychologically submit that this is easier and more convenient and a less of a hassle and things have been so great and you can just kind of let you know everybody else take care of things and be successful. Because if you buy into that, and you think that's you know what you want, or maybe even if it's a psychological front because you don't think you're going to be able to attain the American dream, so it's just easier for you to go, well, I didn't want that anyway. Much easier for them than having to force it upon you. And I can't tell you, like every day now I'm on social media and it's not just the, the, media, the media stories that of course are ridiculous and pushing this, but I'm seeing these successful individuals being like, yeah, I'm not really sure I want to own a house or it seems like kind of a pain and I'm not sure I should, you know, go into debt for this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you're literally eating the propaganda up. They love this. They want you to think this. And we've been training a young generation with technology, which rents everything to you as a subscription or a service anyway, to accept this as their fate. And it so stands at odds with wealth creation and freedom, because you have to own things. You have to own assets that can appreciate in value or retain their value in order to create wealth. So if you don't have those, you can't create wealth. If you don't own anything, they own you. And just the idea when we talk about, and, and this is where I'm like tying all these things together in the book, something like social credit we talked about, so what happens if you let Wall Street own your house? You have a corporate investor as your landlord, as is happening um, in droves these days. So then the government doesn't want the gas stoves. Well, much easier to get your, your corporations to comply with that than it is to get you and me to comply with that. They, they don't want to have guns or ammunition. Just say can't have that in the housing. You say something on social media they don't agree with, they could literally yank you out of your house. And so the implications for your wealth creation, which the house is the, the biggest asset on household balance sheets by dollar value across all households, um, is one piece of it. And then that ties in with your freedoms as well. And so the idea that so many people are being trained and feel despondent and despair over the fact that they can't participate in this piece of the American dream is something that like we all need to be fighting back on. And it's, you know, it's just fundamental to why I wrote this book. Well, you know, when it comes to the WEF, you know, they, they, they have these big meetings, right? And they, they talk about all this climate stuff and you shouldn't do this and don't do that and don't drive cars and, you know, cow farts are bad and and blah 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 right mind you they're all flying their private jets you know all the way to davos which which pollutes the air you know immensely really it does and they don't care but you said something in, in the book which i believe you said klaus klaus schwab said about penetrating the cabinets ah that was on twitter actually 
But no. I may have said it. I may have said that. In the, no, you know what? I did say that in the book. You did too. say it in the book. I, I did totally, say it in the book. Yes. Okay. You know, you I, totally said. And so, you know, and that sounds bad. That means they're infiltrating governments, which they have here. We have all kinds of weft puppets in our government right now, you know? Yeah. So, and, and, and me personally, I feel like any person in the United States government that has any dealings with the WEF should be charged with treason of the highest regard. So it's interesting. So I, I agree with you in a sense. I think, so I will admit, I and I told you this in the book, I'm a useful idiot for the World Economic Forum because when I was like 2010, I was blogging, I got invited to something, I'd never heard of it before. And I went to some uh, discussion in New York and somebody was talking about blue ocean strategies. And I'm like, oh, it's an interesting book, blah, 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 whatever. I think a lot of people who derive benefit from it don't realize all of the things that are coming out of it, or they turn a blind eye, or they don't care. And so that's part of the 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 issue. What I, you know, I, I was toying around with the other day is given the fact that they what they basically put out is communist propaganda, that why don't we treat them? as a purveyor of communist propaganda and why don't we defund them and tell people that they can't associate with them just like we did you know back in the day when there was a cold war i mean that that would be i mean because again i think a lot of people associated with i mean there's a wide net of people associated and i would guarantee you 80 90 have no idea what's going on and they're just deriving some roe benefit out of it but like, why not shed a light? Like, here are the things that they said. These, This is unacceptable. This is communism. We've always been anti-communist. That's it. We're done. No no more affiliation. This is a, you put a, slap some sort of a, a an appropriate label um, on their organization and call it like it is. And the craziest part is our money is being sent to them. Our yeah. money is being sent to this organization who wants us chipped, tracked, and eating bugs. Obama sent them a shit ton of money, and Trump spent even more money. I put that at those. That those are statistics in the book. I couldn't believe how much of our money was going to fund these idiots, and uh, and that's just unacceptable. Our taxpayer money. Forget about through all the corporations who are also, you know, we're giving them dollars voluntarily, and they're funding it, but directly. Um, I believe it was open the books that did all the work on this. I cited in the book, but that's just staggering. And like you said, it was on a every president basis, like everybody's been involved. So it's not like, oh, you know, this guy stood up and said, absolutely not. And we're done here. It's just, you know, on an ongoing basis, like, oh, Davos, it's fun. Jets, Switzerland. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild. Now, Moving on from the WEF, because I know we, we only have so much time um, and I, I could talk to you forever, honestly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you said something in this book and you brought it up about corporations buying up homes. Yes. I knew this was happening, but what I did not know was the magnitude of how it was happening and yeah. where it was happening. Um, not only are corporations buying up homes in droves by the hundreds of thousands, they're not even in our country. There's out-of-country corporations buying not only homes, but land to rent to us, not to sell. They are renting us properties from other countries. Yeah, this was this whole thing was so staggering to me. And it's like, I knew some of it, 
but I didn't realize the the totality of it. So what you have to understand is that before 2010, and this was one of the most shocking things that came out of my research, there was no meaningful corporate or slash institutional capital in the single family home markets. Sure, you may have had mom and pops that were incorporated that may buy a, you know, a few houses to rent them out, but we're not talking about, hey, I'm a publicly traded company, I'm backed by BlackRock and JP Morgan Chase and Capital One, and I'm gonna go buy tens of thousands of homes and put out my 10Ks and my annual reports and, and rent you the American dream. And so you know what happened coming out of the Great Recession financial crisis, I think everybody knows that Wall Street got a bailout um, and, you know, almost six million people, individuals lost their homes to short sales uh, or foreclosures. So, you know, haves and have nots there. But the monetary policy that came out of that period basically gave cheap, easy and abundant capital to Wall Street. And, you know, they had all of these different places that they inflated, you know, the, the value of assets. And then, you know, all these homes in the market depressed the value. Oh, hey, you know, we could go buy some homes. This would be a great opportunity. They turned their attention to the single family home market in 2010. First time. The end of 2022, CoreLogic said that more than one in every five homes, I think 22% were purchased by a corporation. So that's a huge, and again, this is not of all homes, but of, of the supply of homes sold during that year, but a huge turn of events in just a, a 12 year time period. And what is so frustrating to me is that these corporations aren't buying them and fixing them up and then flipping them to make a little profit. And then, you know, you get to participate in the upside and somebody else has done the work to make the house nicer. They're literally stealing that opportunity. They're taking it out of the market, probably for a long period of time, if not forever. So that largest asset on a family's balance sheet, you no longer have that home as, an, as a, a family that is going to use that to create their wealth for their family. And so it, it's just a, a huge wholesale transfer of wealth from Main Street to Wall Street. As you mentioned, you know one of the players that I talked about in the book and one of the things I did with, with all these players is I just quoted from their annual reports um, and their 10Ks, because I thought it was best for you to see it in, in their words, is a company called Tricon Residential. And Tricon, they are publicly traded in the US, but they're based in Canada. <laughs> so you have a Canadian company that's coming to the US to buy tens of thousands of homes, with the backing of Wall Street cheap capital that the Fed gave them to basically transfer wealth from Main Street to Wall Street. Like, no wonder people can't get ahead. And again, people can see the the issue. They, they can see like, oh, there's a problem, but they don't know that they know the symptom. They don't know the ailment. They don't know what's behind it. So they don't know who to get mad at and who to get angry at and how to, to try and make this this, you know, get fixed, how to, to affect change. And so it's a, a really frustrating process, um, which, you know, that's one side as well as all the regulations and laws that impact, you know, other people from building homes, make them more costly. The fact that they've messed with the labor market. So there aren't even enough people to build homes if you wanted. And then at the same time, they've destroyed individual balance sheets. Right. We've had massive inflation. That means more credit card debt, 
less savings. And if you're a young person, you know, you're crushed with predatory government debt that uh, got, gone to your college education where they've transferred money from young people to colleges and the administrators. So, you know, these are kinds of things that really go across the political spectrum. Like, I don't care if you're progressive or MAGA, you know, <laughs> like hey. you should be really mad that people cannot buy homes because of the Fed and the government. And the same thing with you know, young people getting crushed by debt. Like these are the kinds of things we should all be able to get behind. And, uh, you know, they've just done a really good job of making people go, oh, yeah, no, well, I just, I won't own a house because, you know, I don't want to fix the toilet when it's broken. Come on, people, come on, you have to understand this. So um, again, you know, knowledge is power. And it's why we have to spread the word. Doesn't matter who the person is. Like these are the kinds of things we can all get behind and find common ground. Well, you know, and you kind of touched on you know uh, young people trying to get ahead, and 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 one thing that really, really, really stops them from giving it, getting ahead, and and I actually live it. Uh, my wife um, is student loans. Right. You know, you know, an eighteen-year-old kid can say, "Hey, I want to get a loan." to start a business, give me a hundred grand. And they'll be like, hell no, but Hey, we'll give you a hundred grand to go get a, a underwater a basket weaving degree, right? Yeah. And <laughs> or some gender study bullshit. And then, you know, they're in all this debt and what they don't tell you is, and I went through this when I went to go buy my house with my wife is the debt to income ratio. So then when we go to file paperwork to buy our house, right? Well, when she's over 60K in the hole to Eastern Michigan University, they they look at that and say, hey, yeah. you can't afford this joint. Yeah. But they don't tell you that when you're going to get these student loans. But on top of it, they won't give you like a private loan to start a business to gain some capital. They'll just say, hey, go get your gender study degree and you'll pay, pay us $50 a month for the rest of your life while we charge you astronomical interest. And by the way, you're never buying a house. Right. And there and there's no underwriting. So it's not like, hey, okay, you're gonna get an engineering degree that we think is gonna pay eighty to a hundred thousand dollars a year. So we're gonna give you X and oh, you're gonna get underwater gender studies. So we're gonna give you Y and there's gonna be a bankruptcy process and we're gonna price this all accordingly and it's gonna be like every other loan that's out there. No, they just saddle minors and 18-year-olds with this debt. There's no possible way for you to get out of it. They don't give you any tools to evaluate the ROI and they just wholesale transfer this to the colleges who, by the way, the cost of college has grown. And I always get mixed up which one's which, but it's five and eight times GDP and wage growth, one or the other, five of one and eight of the other, um, but it's still exponential. So it's not like all of this money that's going to the colleges uh, because they've got no skin in the game. They're like, oh, we'll just keep charging more. They're not doing anything to improve your outcomes. It's just literally, it's not growing the economy. It's not growing your wages. They're just sucking up the cash. It's the biggest financial scam out there. The government college lending is the biggest predatory loan scheme out there. And again, like, why is this not something that we're all like, this doesn't make sense. We don't want young people to be saddled with that unless 
you are the government who does want them to be saddled with debt because then they have fewer opportunities and they're you know more uh, dependent upon the government for their services. And when you're late stage cycle of of you know, government that has a lot of debt doesn't have a lot of tools left in your toolbox, that sounds pretty appealing to you. And and that's the ultimate goal on their end. Really, you own nothing. We will control you. We will we will have every facet and every asset in your life. And we will rent it to you accordingly, as long as you can pay X amount of dollars. As long as your social credit score is good. That's <laughs> Otherwise, right. Otherwise, you get the bugs. <laughs> but you did say something that I really appreciated in the book when it came to student loans. And you broke it down like this. If your career is not going to pay off your student debt in five years, you might want to pick something else to do. It's not a might. You have to. It's three to five years and it's seven if you're going to you know, make some crazy multiple six figures and you have to get an advanced degree. And you're like, oh, Carol, how did you come up with that? Well, my previous career, as I said, I'm a recovering investment banker. And what we do when in investment banking is we look at payback periods on capital expenditures. And if something doesn't pay back in a three to five year period, Again, maybe a massive investment that you know pays off some crazy amount of the seven year. You don't do that. You don't make that investment. So I just apply the same formula to the investment in your education and your, which is really an investment in your accreditation, right? Because we can all get the education. We just want the accreditation that we think is going to improve our lot in life. If you're doing it for other reasons, then there's really no reason to pay you know, multiple five figures to be able to do that. You can learn that for free on YouTube or you can go to a community college or, you know, whatever it is. But like, there's just been such a disconnect. College is not valuable at any price. It's only valuable if you can get a return on that investment. And so three to five years is a really good proxy. And, um, you know, way to, to basically think about that is that like, if you think three years out, you're going to be making $60,000 a year, then you would not want to take on more than $60,000. Like that's a good, just quick rule of thumb. Um, but if you think about it, like some of the ones I talked about in the book, you know, Duke with, you know, not only tuition room board, almost $80,000 a year. I couldn't what imagine. Do you learn it? What are you learning for $80,000 a year? Holy crap. Whose parents are paying for that? That's a lot of I mean, money. yeah, it's, it's a, just a suck by these colleges and universities, just sucking it up. And again, when they come back to you and they go, oh, well, it's good for the economy. Well, it's not because it's not growing the economy faster. It's not growing wages faster. And there's a reason why we have a bunch of people with college degrees who are working at Starbucks complaining about their college debt. So obviously that set of scenarios is not working. We need to rethink this. Amen. I, you know, I can't agree more with you on that. Now, now moving on, let's, uh, we got to talk about CBDCs because that's the <laughs> thing. It's happening. Um, it's terrifying. And we need to fight this at all costs. We have to, I don't even know how else to explain it. You know, I don't want the, the feds coming to my house. So I don't want to say too much, but like, you know, we have to stop this. This is, this will solidify our enslavement. Really, it, it will. You're not exaggerating. It's the not only the thing that I'm probably the most worried about, 
But when I talk to my following, who tends to be a little bit more financially savvy, it's the number one thing that everybody is concerned about because it can be a mechanism to, you know, kind of enforce all these other things that we're talking about. You know, social credit can be enforced by a CBDC. ESG can be forced by a CBDC. You know, Wall Street owning your home and, you know, your ability to stay in it can be enforced by a CBDC. So basically... Uh, It is a fully centralized currency that is programmable in nature. And so it would give the Fed and the government the ability to track every single dollar and frankly make decisions on how to do it. There's um, a piece, a a World Economic Forum, (laughs) keep popping up again, video (laughs) with uh, Eswar Prasad, who's a professor from Cornell that's been making the rounds on social media over the past couple of weeks. I think it's from a, a couple of years ago. But, you know, he's like so excited. He's like, you know, what's so exciting about this, although some people consider it to be a dark world, I'm on the dark world side, is the programmable nature of this. And he's talking to you about, hey, you know, if the government doesn't want you to buy things like, you know, pornography or ammunition, seems a little bit different there. But, you know, again, whatever it is, they could turn off accessibility. Um, So, you know, the implications that they can make it expire, that they can say you can only use it in certain places, that they can influence, you know, your access to it and the possible levers that they have to pull to suck people into it makes it so incredibly dangerous. And it is something that needs congressional approval. So that is one place where we can jump up and down and, you know, try to make sure that this doesn't get passed. But this is a place where like, it sounds very preppery, but you need a plan. Like if you don't have some alternate way to barter and to have like a medium of exchange in case you get your your access to your money cut off, like you need to be thinking about that now because this is not just theoretical. Like the New York Fed just finished a pilot program with a bunch of major financial institutions. It was at what's called the wholesale level. So bank to bank, not your consumer facing. But they were very enthusiastic about it. And once they open it up at the wholesale level, they're just a step away from retail and nothing's going to stop them. And oh, by the way, the G7 came out with principles, coordinated principles for retail facing CBDCs. So they don't do these things if it's not something that they're truly considering. And that should be a wake up call to everyone to, you know, A, stand against this and say, this is not happening. B, realize there could be a period of chaos where they try to implement this thing. And you got to have some way to have mediums of exchanges in your life um, if you don't have access to all that money that you earned, which is just another reason why like, we need to get our, our, our money out of this form factor that we don't control and have things more in assets that we actually own because we just don't know what's happening with that form factor. Absolutely. And I mean, you could, you can protect yourself by getting tangibles like gold. And I know gold's really expensive and it's not attainable for everybody, but silver is very attainable for the common man. And so is brass and so is ammo. And so is food. Exactly. Things that you're going to need. And it sounds very alarming, but this is alarming what we're going through right now. Um, the CBDC can be shut down at any moment if you say anything naughty about the government or if you, you know, get yourself a traffic ticket or anything that anything that might piss them off. They could be like, hey, we're shutting your shit down. And then you have nothing. 
Well, we just talked about what's happening in China, right? Is it, It's not that far away from that. And by the way, it doesn't even have to be specific to you. Think about what the Fed's trying to do to control the inflation that, by the way, they caused in concert with the government. Um, you know, they're trying to, quote unquote, destruct demand. And they're doing that through their tools, which are increasing interest rates. What if they had access to the currency and they could destruct demand by not letting you spend anything? Do not think that they won't do that. Of course they're going to do that. So that's going to be the carrot. Oh, we need, we will be able to more easily control inflation. And oh, by the way, you have a maximum spending limit of X now per month until we get inflation under control. I mean, th this is a stone's throw away from where we are now. And we just have to do everything we can to try to prevent it from happening. But should it pass, you need to have a plan. Absolutely. Now, before we go, I have something very controversial to ask you. And uh -oh. you're, you're no stranger to this is my This is my natural color. No. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to go with it here. Okay. Mrs. Big Hair Don't Care. Yes. Who's your favorite hair band? They say hair. So my favorite hair band, the tough one. I have such love for so many of them because that's sort of, you know, my genre, my people. Um, You're a fellow Gen Xer, so I had to ask. Yeah, no, I know it's tough. Like I would say like Roth era Van Halen obviously holds a very special place in my heart. I don't know if everyone would consider them a hair band or not. Um, I would say the same thing with Def Leppard. I really like Def Leppard a lot. Again, some people may or may not consider them. And then if you want to go with like, just like kind of the, the like crazy ones, I really liked Winger and I like White Snake a lot too. So. Nice, nice. And Dave by the way, David Coverdale uh, retweeted me a couple months or a couple weeks ago. So that was very exciting. A lot of people don't know that David Coverdale actually sang for Deep Purple for an album. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of people don't know that, you know, but I had to ask you something fun because. Well, you know. well we have a family friend who did all of those videos. So all of the Tawny Katane, like, you know, kinds of things, as well as a bunch of, oh, I loved Aerosmith too. A bunch of the Aerosmith videos, um, you know, all the ones with Alicia Silverstone and whatnot. And, oh, yeah. Uh, in fact, I actually have some storyboard art from some of those videos from our, our family friend who was the the massive director between behind all of those MTV iconic videos of the 80s. Oh, my God. Early awesome. 90s, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> okay, but, but, so so who's, who's your favorite hair band? Uh, well, I kind of have one of them behind. I'm trolled you a little bit. So yeah. we have Motley Crue is one of my yeah. very favorites. Guns N' Roses, of course. Guns N' Roses is good too. You know, I saw Guns N' Roses and Aerosmith together. That really? was like probably one of the best concerts I've ever been to. When was that? That was very late 80s early 90s at alpine valley in wisconsin wow it was i think it was aerosmith's ragdoll tour and i think it was guns and roses were their like special guests for that but this is where there's my very very favorite band do you want to guess poison no <laughs> <laughs> but it starts with the same two letters Oh man, I'm kind of lost. The police. Oh my God, are you kidding me? 
No, they're my favorite band of all time. They are actually amazing. Uh, Stuart Copeland, you know, Sting, yeah. all these guys. Uh, I saw a funny meme with Keith Richards on it one time that said, you know, he, he got nervous when one of his people came in and said, the police are here. And so he went and hit all his drugs and ended up being <laughs> Sting and Stu Stuart Copeland. You know what I mean? That's awesome. And so, <laughs> but, you know, the police, now they wrote that song, Every Breath You Take. Which, which is a stalker is song. The stalker song. Yeah. But that could totally be relevant to what we were talking about on the show today. <laughs> Oh, we have to like, we have to basically uh, throw, throw out the police, but yes, they'll be watching you. Unfortunately, that should they be, will if, be you put, watching if you put any music over this episode and do a little, a little sample of I'll be watching you. <laughs> That's hilarious. That is so funny. But I had to ask you that just because hair bands are special to me because that was the first music that I found on my own as a kid, other than what my parents were listening to in the car. Gotcha. You know, so, you know, Poison and Tesla was my third concert ever uh, at the open up and say ah to her. I saw them. too. Yeah, I, mean, I saw a lot of them. They're very special to me because we have the same hair and makeup. So, you know, ah. I felt like a, a special bond. But, you know, there's just something about like, you know, the, the hardness of the music and like the great like drums and then also the power ballad that they mixed in. It was just such an interesting time in music. And even when the lyrics were really stupid, the songs, like one of my favorite musical songs is Hot for Teacher by Van Halen. And oh you might God, be like, yeah. that's like a stupid song, but like just to strip out the words, that that music is just phenomenal. And so it's just, it, it just kind of gets you going. And I think, like that's what our generation stood for was like we just have that like moxie and the go get them attitude and I feel like the hair bands like moved that emotion in you in a way like the, the music tastes kind of soulless and like that had just a lot of soul and meat to it so you know it, it was great stuff it was a good time you know the 80s were about party in excess you know yeah and uh I actually lived that life in the late 90s <laughs> but yeah, hey, we all have a past, right? That's right. That's right. Good. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Ladies and gentlemen, buy this book. You will own nothing. I, you have to read it. It's, it's an absolute must. I don't know what else to say. It's about as real as it gets. It's very eye-opening and you will learn a ton. So buy the book, get you some. Carol, thank you so much for doing the show. Thanks. So great to talk to you. Peace, love, and liberty, y'all.